0: Hello, welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. This week, we've got lots of news to get through in a packed podcast. We're talking about drug shortages, the latest on group A strep and how that's affecting GPs and their teams, and looking at the GP workforce in the most deprived parts of England. We'll also be discussing why many practices are facing a precarious future because of a lack of GP partners and how inflation and the cost of living crisis is affecting GP practices. And we've got a good news story on long COVID. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, over the last few years, drug shortages have become a big part of day-to-day life in general practice, causing problems for GPs, pharmacists and patients. Shortages often add significantly to practice workload as patients have to come back to be issued with a new prescription, and some of these people may need additional appointments to explain alternative medication. In the past week or so, GPs and pharmacists have been experiencing particular problems accessing antibiotics in like higher than usual cases of group A streptococcus infection, and the very high level of consultations that are happening as a result of heightened concern. But shortages affect a wide range of drugs. We'll come on to talk more specifically about group A strep in a minute. But Nick, an analysis that you've done this week suggests that medicine shortages in the UK have now hit record levels. What did you find?
1: Yeah, so we've looked at a couple of sources that suggest medicine shortages are now at record levels. As you mentioned, we're going to talk in a bit more detail about strep A shortly, but we've been reporting over the past week or so on problems with access to antibiotics in many areas. And that's come about largely because of increased prescribing to tackle the unusually large wave of scarlet fever and invasive group A streptococcus cases in the early part of this winter. So that is one part of the picture, and it's a significant one. But what we've been able to show is that problems with medicine shortages run far deeper than these problems with antibiotic supplies. So our sister website, MIMS, maintains a drug shortages tracker, which keeps tabs on drugs commonly prescribed in primary care that are reported by manufacturers or suppliers to be out of stock. And it's currently showing that 165 products are unavailable, which is around 30% up compared to the same time last year, and it's a record high. And looking elsewhere, the Pharmaceutical Services Negotiating Committee, the PSNC, which represents pharmacists, uh, keeps track of price concessions granted by the government on medicines, and those are also running at record levels. These price concessions are granted where drugs are only available above the set tariff price that the government's usually willing to pay, or, for example, where drugs are out of stock and alternatives that clinicians need to prescribe instead cost more. And the PSNC figures show that in September, October and November this year, between 155 and 159 price concessions were granted each month. So that's roughly three times the number in the same months last year. So these are all indicators that problems with supplies of medicines are deepening and that prescribing across a wide range of clinical areas is now affected.
0: The drug shortages tracker on MIMS is, is a really useful resource for anyone who's listening that hasn't used it. I mean, that's updated as and when things change by our colleagues and MIMS. And the information often comes from pharmacists and GPs who report shortages, which are then checked with suppliers from the MIMS team. And also suppliers themselves do report the shortages. So we'll put a link to that in the notes for this episode so that you can find it if you've not already used it. Nick, I mentioned briefly at the start some of the problems that these shortages cause for GPs and practice staff but maybe you can talk through a bit about why it's such an issue for practices especially given the other workload pressures they're also having to deal with.
1: On the subject of workload I mean we know that workload pressures for GPs are unprecedented at the moment. 32 million appointments in general practice in October this year before you even count the further 4 million patient contacts for Covid jabs. And as we might have mentioned once or twice before, these appointments are being delivered by a depleted workforce. There are more than 1,800 fewer fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs now than there were in 2015. The last thing practices need is more unnecessary work. And when medicines are out of stock, it means they spend time issuing new prescriptions for alternative drugs. They might spend time with patients explaining why they can't have the medicine that they usually have. And they may need to change the way they issue a prescription so that a patient can chase around a few pharmacies looking for something. And another aspect of the impact on practices is that medicines being unavailable can mean patients are unhappy and that can translate into abuse of practice staff. And ultimately, this is another one of those situations where the problem isn't the practice's fault, but the practice is nonetheless the lightning rod for patients' anger. So much like when hospital appointments are delayed or difficult to access, and patients take out their frustration on primary care staff, the same thing can happen with medicine shortages.
0: So you've also been speaking to pharmacists about some of these problems. What have they been telling you and what are some of the issues they've been facing
1: with regards to drug shortages? The PSNC, which I mentioned earlier represents pharmacists, says that pharmacies are at breaking point and the issues boil down ultimately to cost and workload, which might sound familiar to GPs. Workload is up for pharmacies because they're having to spend more time shopping around for supplies of medicines, both to find any supply at all of some products and to look for supplies at normal prices of other products. And they're saying that their costs are through the roof because large numbers of products are costing them more to obtain than they usually do. So I talked about the price concession system a minute ago, which can increase the reimbursement available where drugs are not available at the usual price. But these take time to agree with the government, and they generally have to be renewed each month, and they often aren't confirmed until late in each calendar month. So up until that point, pharmacies are supplying medicines at a loss, having to pay increased costs to suppliers without any guarantee that their costs will actually be met in full. In terms of the factors driving the problem, the PSNCs is a blend of problems are to blame. Um, They've talked about the COVID pandemic having an impact in slowing down manufacturing and supply chains, and also Brexit and the ongoing war in Ukraine are all factors here.
0: So obviously, as we mentioned, we've seen some real problems in the past week or so with many of the liquid antibiotics for children because of fears around group A strep. Lots of pharmacies, as you mentioned, have been out of stock. Parents have had to travel around to multiple pharmacies to find them. Someone I was talking to said that they had a parent that had been to 12 different pharmacies trying to get hold of the antibiotics they've been prescribed. So it's probably useful to have a little bit of an update on what's going on with group a strep. So as many GPs will be aware you know the numbers of cases of scarlet fever and group a strep infections are significantly higher than would be expected when compared with previous years at this point in the year. Also really worryingly deaths from severe or invasive group a strep are also much higher than would be expected. Compared with previous years, it's important to say that deaths from strep A infection are still extremely rare. But data last week from the UK Health Security Agency showed that 15 children in the UK have sadly died. And media reports since then suggest that a further child has also died. And obviously, widespread reports like this are adding to lots of fears amongst parents. And that is in turn driving up demand for appointments. Last week, NHS England and the UK Health Security Agency issued updated guidance on diagnosing and managing group Strep A, which has been endorsed by the RCGP and NICE, among others. And this applies until the end of January, when it will be reviewed, depending on the current situation with infections. That guidance reiterates previous advice that GPs have been sent, that they should have a low threshold for prescribing antibiotics and referring to secondary care. And we'll put a link to that in the description for this episode if you haven't seen it. But obviously, having a lower threshold for prescribing antibiotics and because parents are more worried about their child if it's their unwell, this means that there have been shortages, as Nick mentioned, of antibiotics all across the country. However, the government has insisted there is no shortage. That's obviously not been the experience of GPs and pharmacists on the ground. Last week, the chief pharmaceutical officer wrote to all pharmacies to say there is sufficient antibiotic stock in the UK to cope with the increased demand. And he basically suggested that problems accessing the drugs should be temporary. So hopefully we should start seeing some signs of things getting better on that front soon. But I know in my local area, there are still some quite bad problems with this. Of course, all of this has placed practices under intense pressure over the past two weeks. Some GPs have reported the highest level of patient demand they've ever seen because of this strep A surge, as it were, which comes on top of already very high levels of appointments. So basically, GPs and their teams are working exceptionally hard at the minute. Next up, Nick, you've been looking this week at some ONS, that's the Office of National Statistics, figures around patients per GP in England and more specifically about the numbers of patients per GP in areas of high deprivation compared with more affluent areas. What did you find?
1: To put this in context, every GP in England is responsible for 7% more patients on average now compared with 2018 that's because the, the population is rising and the GP workforce is heading in the opposite direction. So that's the national picture. But as we've talked about previously on the podcast and, and written about on GP Online, the change isn't uniform across the country because some areas are gaining patients faster than others or losing doctors faster than others. What this research from the ONS does is look at how the changes in the GP patient ratio compare between more deprived and more affluent parts of the country. So it found that numbers of patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP are going up in the most affluent areas, as well as in the most deprived parts of England. So that imbalance between patients and GPs is something that's happening everywhere. But the research also shows that GPs in the most deprived areas are already responsible or are now responsible for 15% more patients on average than those in the most affluent areas. And that the gap is actually widening. So between 2018 and 2022, the most deprived areas saw an 8% rise in patients per GP compared with the rise of 4% in the most affluent areas. So GPs in deprived areas are now responsible for around 2,400 patients each on average, while their counterparts in the most well-off areas have around 300 fewer patients each on average this research provides pretty clear evidence of the imbalance between affluent and deprived areas in terms of the supply of GPs, in terms of underdoctoredness. So another thing that the research also showed, which is interesting, is that in relatively underdoctored areas, there tend to be more nurses, which is something we've reported on in the past. So there's a kind of compensation in terms of recruitment of nurses in areas where numbers of doctors per patient are low. But what this research also shows is that the extra nursing workforce in those areas isn't proportionate to the shortfall in GPs. So there aren't so many more nurses in underdoctored areas that it makes up for the gap in the doctor workforce. The ONS also looked at how GP patient ratios vary according to the age and male-female balance in practices, which is interesting too. And it found that practices with older patients, so more over 65s, or more women registered with them, tend to have lower overall numbers of patients per GP, which makes sense because the funding formula provides more funding for patients in those categories.
0: There's a really good graph on that article, which you wrote, which shows how the number of patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP has changed over time across four different levels of deprivation, which is really worth a look actually, because you can really see how the differences is and how different they are depending on how affluent an area is. And it shows that quite clearly. So we'll put a link to that story in the description for this episode as well. So you can have a look at that. Nick, we've talked on previous podcasts about the fact that the funding formula, which you briefly mentioned there, which decides how much GP practices are paid based on the demographics of their patient population, it doesn't really reflect deprivation. The BMA, RCGP and various other experts have all said the funding formula needs to be overhauled to better reflect deprivation. As we've talked about before, it seems very likely that this is something that will be under discussion for the next GP contract. So that's the one that comes in in April 2024. These figures also show that there's a real shortage of GPs in these deprived areas. So that really lends weight to the argument that change is needed, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it does lend weight to the argument for a change. As I mentioned earlier, there's clear evidence from the ONS figures that practices with older patients and larger proportions of female patients have lower overall numbers of patients per GP. So the patient-to-GP balance reflects what the GP funding formula pays for. And the shortage of GPs in more deprived areas reflects the other side of the same coin. So deprivation is not factored into the GP funding formula, despite evidence that deprivation is a significant driver of workload. And as these figures show, Practices with more deprived populations tend to have more patients per GP. So practice funding is is not the only factor that determines how easy it is to attract doctors to different areas. But nonetheless, this does look like evidence to support the argument that the funding formula as it stands may perpetuate inequality.
0: Last week, GP Online reported on some real concerns around practice succession plans following a new poll that suggested more than half of practices in England need new partners. Nick, you wrote about this. Where did this poll come from and what did it find?
1: This is another warning sign to add to a long list about the sustainability of GP practices and of partnerships. Lloyds Bank publishes a healthcare confidence index based on surveys of doctors And responses from GPs show that more than half of partners said their practice would need to recruit a new partner in the coming years. But it also found that the vast majority of GPs, something like seven in 10, say that they don't ever want to be a partner. So that obviously raises big questions about where partners are going to be coming from to keep a lot of practices going. Uh, And that's at a time when many are struggling anyway with financial workload and workforce problems.
0: We know that increasing numbers of GPs just don't want to be partners. It's becoming less and less attractive. You've been looking at the national data around partnerships over the past few years. What does that data tell us about the overall trends around partnerships?
1: The the statistics on GP partners aren't reassuring. The actual number of GPs in partnership roles, the headcount figure, has gone down by more than a fifth since 2015 more than 5,000 fewer GPs are in partnership roles now than than was the case in in 2015. And back in 2015, more than two-thirds of GPs were in a partnership role. And now that figure's fallen to only just over 50%. So at one point earlier this year, the full-time equivalent number of GP partners seemed to steady a bit, seemed to stabilize. And that may have been driven by the offer of five-figure golden LO payments to attract people into partnership roles for the first time. but Ultimately, partners are continuing to decline as a proportion of the total workforce, and that's both in headcount and in full-time equivalent terms. And the decline of partners is far outstripping the overall decline in the fully qualified GP workforce. So fewer and fewer people are willing to take on the role of running a practice.
0: I think most people in the profession sort of understand the extra workload pressures that partners are under, which is obviously one of the key things that makes the role less attractive. But money also becoming a problem now, isn't it? I mean, despite the headlines we see in the Daily Mail about how much GPs are earning, there are many, many more financial worries for partners now than there were perhaps
1: a few years ago. That's right. We've reported recently on the, the impact of increased energy bills for GP practices and the fact many are going to have to look at significant cost cutting to stay afloat as their bills rise. And the other major factor squeezing practice funding is staff costs. So practices are struggling to retain staff because their household bills are going up fast and they're looking around at other jobs where they may be able to pick up a few more pounds per hour. And unfunded pay increases for staff are a huge problem for practices. Practice funding hasn't increased in line with the rise in pay that practices are expected to award their staff. What we found from the the statistics from NHS Digital on NHS funding for GP practices in recent years was that GP practices on GMS and PMS contracts saw funding rise by between 3% and just over 4.5% between 2019-20 and 21 22 But the pay awards they've been told to give staff are around 6%. So there's a massive shortfall. And in the current financial year, that's the case again. And it means that partners whose pay has already fallen substantially over the past decade in real terms have to consider taking on more work themselves or reducing their drawing to maintain staff levels as they are.
0: Those things that you're talking about there, they've been reflected in the results of a survey that we published the details of this week. So the survey, which we carried out this month, it shows the impact that rising inflation is having on GP practices, and it paints a pretty bleak picture, really. Almost nine in 10 GP partners that responded to our poll said increased costs linked to inflation have undermined the financial sustainability of their practice and 27% of partners said that rising inflation had significantly worsened the financial stability of their practice. So those are quite worrying, you know, as as you mentioned Nick, that's all about things like rising energy costs and other costs as well because of inflation, but also obviously staff pay is the biggest issue that GPs mentioned. So as most people will probably remember, the government recommended that salaried GPs receive a 4.5% pay increase this year. And also there were NHS pay rises for other staff that were worth broadly similar amounts. But also there was no extra funding in the GP contract to cover this and the government refused to give practices any more money to cover the costs. At the time, we were writing about that. When it happened, accountants warned it could cost an average practice an additional £40,000, which they obviously clearly wouldn't have budgeted for. And so many of the partners responding to our survey, said they had given staff a pay rise, but obviously the costs had effectively had to come out of their own income. So they were experiencing a pay cut themselves while also dealing with the rising cost of living. One partner said rising energy costs coupled with the pay rises could mean that they would have to cut costs significantly next year, which is something you were mentioning, Nick. And they said that that would probably mean losing staff. But then they also said they didn't know how they would actually cope with less staff. So, I think that's a real concern and also retention of staff, given the issues you were mentioning, Nick, that came up really as a big problem for practices in our survey. And I also think it's worth noting something else the survey found was that a higher proportion of GP partners said that their personal finances were significantly worse as opposed to somewhat worse as a result of inflation and the cost of living crisis. It was a higher proportion of partners said that than the proportion of GPs overall which said the same. So I think that probably reflects the fact that many partners are experiencing an actual cut in income while some other groups have had some sort of pay rise, albeit that those pay rises are not enough and nowhere near the levels of inflation. So these are all very real financial concerns that GP partners have to worry about. And it's a huge added pressure at the minute on top of what is already a very demanding job in terms of the clinical workload. So perhaps it's not very surprising that fewer GPs are actively choosing to become partners. That's almost it for this week. We've just got time for a good news story. But before I do that, I just want to highlight another story that's on our website this week, which has been one of our top stories this week we've just not had time to talk about. And that is that NHS bosses are asking GPs to cover for striking ambulance workers. That's a story by our new senior reporter, Eleanor Philpots, who will be appearing on the podcast in the new year. So do take have a look at that if you get a chance. This is our good news spot. And so this week's is about long COVID. A new study by the University of Leeds that's been published in the Journal of Medical Virology has found that a rehabilitation programme involving what's known as pacing has shown some impressive results in patients with long COVID. Pacing is based on a gradual increase in a person's physical activity over a period of time. The study was a small group of 31 people with long COVID that took place over six weeks. The patients followed a gradual return to physical activity programme, which was designed by the World Health Organisation and has the very snappy title of the CR10 Borg Pacing Protocol, which basically takes the group through five levels of activity. Before the start of the programme, patients were reporting an average of three crashes a week where they were left physically, emotionally or cognitively exhausted after mild physical or mental exertion, and six weeks later, that reduced to an average of one crash a week. There were also improvements in activity level, quality of life, and a reduction in particular of fatigue, breathlessness, and headaches. So while this is a really small study, it does show some promise on ways that we could start to treat and manage long covid What's also interesting is that the research team behind this study have also been involved in developing the first scale to standardise the measurement of long COVID symptoms. And they're also conducting a major UK-wide study called Locomotion that's aiming to develop gold standards of care for long COVID. I think generally that's something to feel quite positive about. Well, that's it for this week. This is our last episode until the new year. So Nick and I would like to both thank you all for listening to our musings during 2022 and wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thanks also to everyone who's taken part in past episodes of the podcast this year. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. See you in 2023.